Welcome to The Bottom of the Glass, a podcast about the art of traditional rudimental drumming and music of all origins. The Bottom of the Glass is hosted by Dave Loyal, Brendan Mason, and me, Brian Watkinson. We'll dig deep into the theories, the ideas, and the history of rudimental drumming, fifing, and world music through the words and experiences of those who are making music history today. We have a terrific interview later on with Scott and Corinne Mitchell, two very involved, very influential, and very engaged members of the fife and drum community. You're really going to enjoy that discussion. But before we get to that, we wanted to talk about the ongoing discussion in our community regarding songs that our cores have played over the years uh, that may or may not be appropriate in the past or the current time, or may or may not even have been misunderstood over time. Uh, we don't want this to be a political discussion because it's not what the bottom of the glass is about, but we do want it to be an informative discussion with expert perspective that neither Dave nor Brendan or I can bring to the conversation. So we'd like to welcome probably the best person to speak on this subject. Pete Emmerich is an avid historian, an expert in the traditions, origins, and evolution of historical fife and drum and military music. Pete's historical perspective on this topic will be invaluable. Pete Emmerich, thanks for coming on. We're really glad you're here. Brian, thanks for having me. Brendan, Dave as well. Um, I appreciate the opportunity to speak uh, before the audience and, and uh, hopefully I can uh, elaborate on some of the historical aspects of what they do and what the community's been doing and how it's interacted over the years. And uh, like I said, uh, Welcome the opportunity. So, Pete, I'm going to start off here. Can you tell us a little bit about the research that you've done and continue to do in the realms of folk music, fife and drum, military music um, that gives you th this context? Well, a lot of what I do, I inherited from my from my father, who, of course, was in the fife and drum world and, and his compatriots, uh, Art Schrader from Old Sturbridge Village, George Carroll, of course. Uh, and numerous individuals, Eddie Olson, uh, folks that I call contemporaries. Uh, I well, was a kid in those environments, and in doing so, it enlightened me to a, a whole different idea of what we're doing, you know, what we've done in the traditional fife and drum world. Uh, using that in a historical perspective and, and performing for reenactments and uh, at museums, uh, I've had opportunity to to take what I've learned in that environment and expand on that uh, through public demonstrations, individual presentations, and again, uh, the continued research of, of, uh, of my predecessors. That, in a nutshell, and uh, of course, instructing kids and having junior corps and maintaining uh, our, our own fife and drum uh, core here in, in the community uh, of Uxbridge, and, and uh, that's what's led me down this road. Let me ask you this, and this is kind of a, an unrelated topic, but I always find it interesting to ask this of someone who uh, has spent so much time building cores, maintaining cores, uh, keeping cores moving forward. I mean, how how has your recruitment opportunities, how have they been uh, recently, like in Uxbridge and some of the other things you're involved with, have you have you had trouble getting getting new blood in the core and losing people through attrition and that type of thing? Uh, interestingly enough, 
we're all old blood. <laughs> and we managed to migrate into a circle because of our old bloodedness. Um, and, and and we've made our, our, our performances accommodate our ages. And, and the, the, the one thing about it is, is, is the guys that, that perform with us and gals, again, are of a class unto themselves. They, they're a great group of people. And, and Brian and Dave, uh, you've experienced uh, the way we work in a lot of cases. Um, sure have. Great to put people that I consider professionals together and make some wonderful music. Um, that's a, a state of ease that puts me almost into a retirement mode when it comes to managing fife and drum. Uh, to, to, to look out at uh, a parade review at Gettysburg that we do for Remembrance Day, to see thousands of people marching in this parade, uh, and and maybe a, a, a tenth of them that are actually in step, and to see our course step off uh, with a conglomeration of everybody from the United States. I mean, everybody, when I talk about that, from California, from uh, Maryland and Virginia, and, and from all over the country, we come together for that one weekend to, to make this happen. And we, we look like we've been marching together for a hundred years. It's just, it's phenomenal experience for me to do things like that. And so the, the nucleus of our core um, you know, kind of maintains and, and, and does again the music and, and, and picks that out. And, and we, we direct this over distance now, sending out recordings and, and music to folks. And, and when it all comes together, it's just phenomenal because everybody's been doing it for as long as they have. And, and it's a really comfortable place to be. Uh, the old persona of having an identity that was local and, and, and strict to the guidelines of what competition cause and fife and drum cause in the past had with, you know, well, this person's a core jumper, this one, you know, unreliable, won't turn out for half the jobs. All of those things are gone. They're gone. They're historic. You know, uh, we don't, we don't experience that. Uh, and, and that's really the greatest part of it. We can come together and celebrate as a, as a community. And we've only gotten to that stage in the last, you know, five or 10 years. Um, it hasn't, it hasn't been, uh, always like that and uh i i have younger kids uh, in fact i'm sure if some of you have been played with them uh i've caught the kids tour out at old Sturbridge village to perpetuate and continue that activity there uh i've had some great luck with homeschool folks much as common has with uh, the the lexington william diamond corps um and and again it, it, there is a lot of things that um uh, that that dynamic has introduced to us uh, in doing so, again, you, you look at what you're producing. Um, it's brought in different races and different ethnic backgrounds. Uh, and you want to be sensitive to that when, when we start to introduce music, especially that has some sort of a, a, a discord to it that might be modernly interpreted. When I think of the fife and drum community, I think of a, of a community that is, uh, you know, takes all kinds. And you just alluded to that uh, just uh, just now. What do you think the relationship is between historic fife and drum and, and fife and drum in the contemporary modern context? It, it, interestingly enough, um, it, it's all historic. <laughs> uh, I, that's the best way I can phrase it, because. When you look at the Connecticut Valley and the traditions that have existed in the cores that came out of the Connecticut Valley, um, it, they've maintained these traditions 
for hundreds of years. And I'm going to say hundreds of years. If you look back towards the centennial of 1876 and you see some of the documentation of fife and drum that was going on at that particular time and the tunes that they were playing. Uh, if you look at the books and publications, the tutors that you all learn from when you talk about the, the heroes of drumming, I'm going to, I'm going to go on the drumming route here. I mean, cause you guys, well, you're really not all that sensitive to tune titles. <laughs> when you look at drum beatings, there's only the Connecticut halftime and only us New Yorkers and uh, I mean, us Massachusetts and New Yorkers folks have any, bias towards that <laughs> so i mean the reality of it is uh it's um it's it's a different climate today it really truly is a different climate today than it was in the past but it is all historical you're perpetuating a history from the centennial you're perpetuating a, a history that existed at the turn of the century you're, pro you're you're projecting what was projected back then and that to me is is so important it's so important because at one time new england and new york were the only nucleus of that of that type of tradition and having that tradition in places there's not many country not many states that can say that they've had that that level of continuous application um and it obviously appeals to people it it, it keeps bringing people into its its venue and um Again, it's a community that welcomes that. Uh, we, we all know who each other are when we've been around this circuit. Um, we all share uh, our experiences. That's, you don't find that anywhere. You, do, you can't join a club. You can't go to an organization, a sports organization, and find that level of camaraderie. Uh, people do this for their sheer enjoyment, and, and it's not – anything you will find anywhere else in this country. It's, it's very, very unique. Uh, and it's important. It's important that we do this because it is truly an American tradition. So with the idea of Fife and Drum being like an open community um, to, to, to all people of all ethnicities and um, a very welcoming community, um, do you think that there are some, some tunes um, that are common in fife and drum that need a second look, um, and are there potentially some that just need further context? Uh, well, I, I've always approached this issue from a, a perspective of appropriateness. Uh, it really didn't matter what the bias was that was was being exposed in a big picture. It was what's appropriate for the situation that you are presenting yourself from to. For instance, many cores do St. Patrick's Day parades. And when you choose your music for that parade, you don't march down the street playing Rule Britannia. It might be offensive to some of the crowd watchers. And again, knowing what your audience is, 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 is half of what a, a core director or a fife major or drum major, whoever's going to pick those particular tunes out, um, is, is, is half of the battle there. Now, it's, it's, it is truly easy to offend people with music. It, it really is because it is a complex language. It is a language. You've got to understand that it's a device of communication that we're using to communicate a certain thought and I say that certain thought, that certain thought is associated with the lyrics or with the song title. Um, 
you're going to hear me talk more about what a tune is. And I say a tune. As fifers and drummers, we're instrumentalists and we play tunes. We don't play songs. People can say that. uh, The lyrics are representative of a song, not a tune. And unfortunately, over time, tunes that have been around for a long time get lyrics in song that don't necessarily meet today's standards by uh, what we would call or consider socially acceptable. Um, I'm going to probably strike a, a, a really difficult chord here with some folks, but I'm sure that every one of you have played the tune Old Dan Tucker. And when you hear the tune Old Dan Tucker, you hear a simple melody and a really quaint drum beating that accompanies that melody. And and we, we learn this as kids in some cases, in a lot of cases, or as beginners. And we have affection for the music that we learned as beginners, as 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 new entries into this. Um, but when you think about the tune, old Dan Tucker, what does that mean? It, well, that can't possibly be offensive to anybody. Um, it's just a tune that we learned in As- Acting Oslin's book or, uh, you know, The Spirit of 76 or any of these these tutors that, that we learned uh, these, these fife and drum tunes from. And uh, when you look at the lyrics of it and understand who the author was, being, of course, uh, Daniel Decatur Emmett, and what he did throughout his life um, and how he gained his income, we're, we're voicing a musical expression of support for that author um, by performing that tune. And believe me, it's not a contemporary voice of support. It's, it's a historic presentation of that support. And... Uh, Unfortunately, in today's perspective, we, we, we look at what goes, what's going on in the monument world. We look at what's going on in the streets uh, with the law enforcement issues and, and all of these, these issues that seem to be uh, identifying, um, again, the, the bias that might be associated with, with, with our community as it exists. There's, there's a very complicated structure to when we, when we talk about those particular tunes, minstrel tunes in general. And uh, Old Antaka wasn't just constructed by a minstrel artist. Um, it was written by a, a, a retired drummer from the United States military, which was what Dan Emmett was doing at that particular time and, and, and playing the fiddle, the traveling with circuses. Um, he had, uh, when he composed the tune, people thought of it as, as, as very much loaded with gibberish and nonsensical, uh, when you look at the songs and the lyrics, but like most of the minstrel music, it, it was written to an audience that was in a satirical fashion that, that was to engage an audience in a, in, a, in a view of their own lives, bringing out all of the bias that was going on in the religious environment of the 19th century, the biases that were going on in the community life. Um, a, a, a typical example uh, is there's a phrase in, in old Dan Tucker that goes, 
Tucker went round the hickory steeple. There he met some colored people. Some were black and some were blacker. Some were the color of old brown tobacco. Now, when you hear that lyric, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Tucker went round the hickory steeple. That meant he went to a church. That's what he's saying. He went to he went to a, a, a religious institution. And when he talked about some people were black, he's looking at the sinners. He's identifying the sinners. And some were blacker. These folks were the really bad sinners. And he knew these people in his community. And, and it's a reflection of a lot of people can identify with. And then some were the color of old brown tobacco. Um, and obviously, there's a racial integration in this particular environment. And that's what he's saying. Um, and all of these lyrics that are associated with a lot of these minstrel tunes were, were constructed for the entertainment of primarily the white population using their own cultural existence as as a satire they did it through the catalyst of 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 blackface um which again a, a very problematic area by today's standards but at that particular time blackface evolution came as a result of one or two individuals in the circus circuit from the 1820s uh, Joel Walker Sweeney was one, and uh, I'm sure people are, are, are very much uh, familiar with his particular com contribution to that circuit, uh, Turkey in the Straw. I did happen to see uh, a, a little bit of a, a, uh, a uh, dialogue on that in, in one of the, the Fife and Drum page uh, posts. And again, when, when you look at how that materialized these performers that were doing this blackface minstrelsy evolved out of a circus clown environment that's what they were they were clowns in a in a in a cir traveling circuses and it was a way for musicians to make money to go out and dress in exotic clothing and 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 don the blackface attire and and again they're not they're, they're using the catalyst of the black race, of the, of the enslaved population. Let's not call it the black race. Let's call it the enslaved population as an attention getter. And they're using the material of, of the white middle class or lower middle class uh, satirical humor, comical humor in order to deliver their message. And that's what made it successful. Now, the question becomes, again, what happened with that with that venue that was so important that it would perpetuate itself up until the 1960s and and when i say that it it it, it blackface minstrelsy continued in my neighboring community up until 1962 i think was the last uh, blackface show that they had done in the community uh it was a very commonplace thing up here um and and again when when you start to look at at why that was perpetuated, because there was music that was introduced that became cutting edge for its time, and perpetuated later in in formats such as jazz, and and with the 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 introduction of of, of African 
root beatings, um, you started to see the, the syncopation come in. And, and 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 areas that drummers had ne never previously ventured into until this this music materializes, and it's it is really extremely important to to be able to understand that it, it it's roots music. It's it's really the only thing that we can identify as an American music um, because it, it it grew within that time period and it traveled throughout the world. Uh, it's a force that needs to be reckoned, and unfortunately, it it it, it used a, a catalyst that that probably to, by today's well, not probably by today's standards by today's standards is certainly certainly. Uh, so, so let let me ask you this, and and you alluded to it while you were just talking about the distinction between a tune and a song, right? So, so if when Dan Emmett wrote Dixie, for example. If he had just written a tune, we would be playing it today with no problem, right? I mean, it's a snappy, you know, tune and, you know, two, four signature that that sounds good. But he didn't. He wrote lyrics to go with that tune. So the lyrics of the song are now indelibly attached to the tune. Like when a fife and drum corps marches down the street and they play Dixie, they're, they're not singing the words. But... They are playing the tune, which is attached to the connotation of the lyrics. So have there ever been, and this might be a, a you know, kind of a hardball question. Have there ever been any tunes that have been able to separate the connotation of the lyrics to the actual tune itself and, and remain popular that you know of? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, an interesting example. Uh, around 1602, from 1602 to 1620, uh, over in England, of course, you had uh, some some rather great unrest, and the Cornish Bishop Trelawney was imprisoned in the Tower of London, and a popular tune that, 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 that's actually today a very uh, a, a Cornish anthem, uh, a Welsh anthem. And a regimental march of one of the Welsh armies, uh, a tune called Shall Trelawney Died, uh, very, very popular overseas. And again, commonly known by everybody in that country. And when you look at Colonel H.C. Hart's instructor for the Fife and Drum of 1861, you'll see it, a title called Le Petit Tambour. And it's a great little tune. Um, it, it has a, an interesting drum beat that accompanies a three-part fife um, uh, arrangement. No, not arrangement, but uh, sequence. And uh, when you think about the, the French connotation of the little drum, uh, what the title is, it's very innocuous. And, and again, it has no direct correlation to anything that might seem uh, somewhat bias and if you do a little more research and go back to 1836 you will find that tune materialize as a tune called alabama joe um, i mean i'm sorry 1846 and the tune alabama joe if you've ever read the lyrics uh, and i i would really encourage folks to to go on like uh, the levy site um 
or the the digital collections at the Library of Congress and type some of these titles in. Um, and, and you can read these songsters and these broadsides that were published as popular music. And again, when you see popular music of the 19th century, that's, again, the birth of, of, of something that we experience today um, that, that was very much unheard of earlier in history because the printing press now is, is making cheap and available copies and, and, and instruments being made stateside rather than having to be imported all the time. People have music in their homes and, and buying a, a broadside or a, a piece of music that was published uh, for Piano Forte was your record album of the 60s and your, your, your cassette of the 70s and your, your, your uh, CD of the 90s. And uh, that was the way it was, that was the way it was popularized. So you, you, had those influences the publishers of course would put this material out to encourage people to buy it and they would have bands that would travel from community to community to play these numbers and get people's interest in buying it purchasing it so it, it gained popularity uh, specifically as a banjo melody when you looked at alabama joe the words would make the hair on the back of your neck rise um, because of its offensive lines that, that are represented there. Um, it's only because, of, uh, again, the flagrant use of the N-word. And uh, again, it, it had really nothing to do with the enslaved population. It talked about a, a, an individual in the community that, that had enriched himself from the proceeds of those who surround him. It was more like about the plantation owner than it was the, the uh, the uh, the enslaved population. So that, but but you can pick up that book and, and look at heart and say, huh, this is a nice little tune. Doesn't have a controversial title, but anybody that knew anything about minstrel music would immediately recognize that tune. The Dan, the the Emmett book. When you start to look at what's in the Bruce and Emmett book, um, again. Uh, Money Musk, a very old Scottish tune, uh, wound up in a banjo tutor and in Briggs banjo tutor in 1850, and again adopted to the uh, minstrelsy by adding lyrics to it. They called it Darky Money Musk. Um, a little bit different. Wow. But it has a really cool syncopation on the banjo. Uh, and in the melody line that you don't hear in the five. But uh, again, they're, they're, these tunes are, are throughout our history. Um, it, you, if, you, if you type in, uh, 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 go to uh, the Levy Collection and, and, and look up the, the Girl I Left Behind Me or British Grenadiers, and, and you will find broadsides that are printed with, uh, with, with blacks depicting military costumes and in in a in a fashion that looks in disarray um you will find all of these things and, and it's in everything that we have i've had minstrel broadsides that have yankee doodle in them. i have there 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 are a number of different things that that uh that again because they turned them into songs we now have to deal with the ramifications of the tune so, right. so, so Pete, let me ask you this. Um, you do a lot of programming where, where you actually have um, more than just playing music. You actually ha have a chance to speak to some of the audiences 
um, you know, whether it's in schools or Sturbridge Village or different programs that you do around the country. Um, and so how do you how do you prepare an audience um, to to understand this music, to, to understand parts of this music that that others might find offensive? Um, is it something that that there's um, it just requires some context? Do you have any any thoughts on that? Well, uh, as a career police officer retired, um, context was extremely important to me, especially as I did the research on on the material that we've done. Uh, again, uh, and I will sit here and tell you there isn't a racist bone in my body, uh, and I'm going to use that to support what I have to say. Um, I felt that it was important that this music be exposed only because it was such an important segment of, of, of our evolution in American music. And uh, in doing so, I interpret the pieces that I perform by today's standard, taking the 19th century language and, and identifying the, the 20th century connotation to it. And uh, I, I, I absolutely have to interpret the music. And I get the forum to do that because it's a one-on-one -on -one scenario in most cases. Um, unfortunately, the fife and drum world doesn't get to experience that because you don't have that one-on-one -on -one, uh, opportunity uh, that often you pray in musters and parades and, and you're passing by and uh, unfortunately, the only communication that you have with your audience is after the event or after something has been performed. And, and it's usually a very small audience that that actually wants to hear what your music was all about. Uh, unfortunately, the word travels very slowly in that environment as well. Um, and, and we share that. But uh, again, it's it's a mechanism or a device in, in the in the fife and drum community that uh, doesn't allow for that very often. Um, there are ways that you can probably fix that, uh, you know, having a, a little detailed, a, a little more detailed information at the onset of performances, uh, especially if people are going to do something that uh, represents a specific topic. Um, we all have our routines. Uh, and, and again, when you look at those routines, um, they represent something. They represent something of each organization, whether they're showcasing the drums or whether they're featuring a fife arrangement, who did that, uh, how it was accomplished, how it was arrived at. And, and again, you know, does good music really need to have that much of an explanation or interpretation today? I don't. I don't know if it does, to be honest with you. I can appreciate it. Uh, but, uh, you know, again, most Folks don't take the time to, 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 to really put on their listening ears when it comes to that, uh, I found over the years. And, and again, even the expressions of, 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 uh, of performance, we, we share that in little, little circles, but we don't really, we don't showcase that as much as we probably could or should.
Now, when you look at the traditions that have gone before us, the Gus Mollers, the, you know, Earl Sturtz, the, you know, the, Doug, the Hugh Quigley's, when you look at drummers, and when you look at fifers, if I said the name Joe Heck, who would know who he is? Uh, you know, he, he's, he's an award-winning fifer from the turn of the century, from 1880s uh, out of Hartford. Uh, the, the, the names just go on and on. Um, in fact, I, I had a discussion with Jim Smith uh, a, a few months back uh, out of Pennsylvania about how we recognize the outstanding people in our community and, and the, the ones that we identify as community leaders within that fife and drum world. And uh, it's it's interesting to hear some different perspectives on that. Um, we've, we've, we've always done that traditionally in a very oral tradition. Uh, but there's no format when you take out the competition aspects of it um, for that to occur. And there are some lifelong people who have just dedicated so much to the fife and drum community over the years um, that pass in with very little recognition. And uh, and, and I, 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 for one, you know, think there needs to be some sort of company of fifers and drummers Hall of Fame um, and recognizing those individual comp the contributions. And, and it doesn't have to be, you know, the greatest drummer, the greatest fifer. It, it, it really just needs to be uh, an identification that that person existed in this community. Um, that's that to me is, is, is huge. Um, Boom. You know, it can very often be someone who doesn't even play a fife or a drum, you know, someone who supported a core, someone who made uniforms, you know, like, you know, through the weekend because a core needed them. You know, it can be those people. And there's a lots of those, lots of those. Yeah. You know, doing the research over the years and a lot of these, a lot of these people, it's, it's, I've been fortunate enough to last 50 years or so to be able to put a face to the names that, that I, that I like to talk about. Um, but uh, I would love to look back at the 1880s and the 1870s and the 1900s and, and be able to put a face to that name. Um, and I'm sure that they're out there somewhere. Uh, but again, we're getting a little off topic <laughs> on this regard, but uh Again, just something that that we should think about as a community, and, and again, it's appropriate. Getting so back, back to one more thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Getting back to the uh, to the to the appropriateness of music. Um, are we going to throw the Bruce and Emmett book out? Are we going to throw the Hot book out? Um, are we going to throw Acting Oslin's book out? Are we going to throw Ralph Sweet's um, Pfeiffer's Delight out? Uh, you know, th these these are the kinds of things that that are embedded in our tradition, and and in the, I say it's everybody's tradition. We don't discriminate. It, it's not a white middle class or upper middle class or lower middle class community. It's an everybody community. And I see that all the time. I, I see that constantly. I, I, I have my tents set up aside of the guys from Dickinson or, or, or Dow, and, and I see the camaraderie that exists in that community. Uh, I, I see the things that they play and they perform that that cross those same bridges. So if, if it's okay for them to do kingdom come, then 
we need to be doing kingdom come you know that that's 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 certainly acceptable um as a as a community as a tradition in the fife and drum jam session world uh as as a, what we what we all all think of as traditional fife and drum music um again g- g- Amongst ourselves, I, I think we're, we're a great population when it comes to that. Um, I, I don't think we need to think too hard into some of these 19th century publications. I just think we need to be appropriate in how we present those. Um, and, and again, you're going to hear the Bonnie Blue flag come out of a, a jam session and people are going to say, oh, my God, it's a Confederate tune. I'm not going to play it. And you have every right to not play it. And, and, but again, it's representative of a tradition. Again, in the fife and drum world, if, if you're, you're presenting yourself as a Confederate reenactor or doing a Confederate presentation, it's, it's historical and documentable in that particular venue. And, and it should be, it should be performed if, if that's, if that's what they want to do. Again, when you talk about the offensiveness of it, is it going to be the duty of the performers or the duty of the announcer at a muster, uh, somebody to interpret that? That discretion has to be allowed to the presenter. I, I think that's. I think they need to. They need to make the decision on how they want to present that. Um, we're not a neo-Nazi organization. We're not a pro-Confederacy. Uh, organization we have no ties in the political aspects of those and they need to remain that way uh, and we need to be we need to be cautious of, of 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 things that could intrude in that area but um but we still need to we still need to be able to present those i think it's it's very important for the tradition so peter a couple things <clears throat> I just had to check if my microphone was on. Yeah, so I'm on the e-board for the company, and that is definitely going back to what you were saying about uh, you know creating a hall of fame uh, for past members of Fife and Drum that have, have contributed a lot. That has been a discussion that we've been talking about in the last uh, year or so. So I completely agree with you on that. Um, but going back to your point uh, on you know context is everything in terms of, of how these songs are presented. Uh, I know in the in the Connecticut Patriots, we're obviously a, a progressive uh, fight for drum corps. We don't really have um, you know our foot too too far into the traditional aspect of things. Um, it was a discussion that we had a few years ago, like should we play Dixie or should we you know not play Dixie? And at that time, we had all decided. Uh, well, the majority of us had decided that you know for history's sake, we should probably continue to play it. Uh, obviously, the climate of the country is is what it is at this time, um, and and we have since you know rethought that we're not a a a, a, a reenacting group or we're not a, a you know historical group, so we, I think we've made the decision to not play Dixie anymore. What is your suggestion for other cores that that may you know come across a, a particular tune and they they want to question that and there's questions over that should they do that or should they not should it be a, the decision of the type of group they are or in 2000 we were we went out to perform at the Dan Emmett Festival in Mount Vernon Ohio which was Dan Emmett's hometown and uh, we had every intention of going out there and playing everything in the Bruce and Emmett book that 
he'd contributed and whatever opportunities we had to play. And Dixie, of course, being at the top of the list. About a week before we were set to travel out there, I, I had a correspondence with one of the program directors who requested that we not play Dixie when we go out to the Dan Emmett Festival in Mount Vernon, Ohio. This is in the middle of nowhere. This is nothing but rows of corn on both sides of your street for miles and miles. And it was an absolutely phenomenal festival where thousands of people appeared <laughs> out of nowhere. And we got there and a conversation with, with the program director basically revolved around the fact that we traveled 1,200 miles to pay our respect to an author who contributed so much to the traditions and to uh, our, our repertoire and our desires and likes and education and all of the things that, that the Emmett book provided for us. Um, and we certainly were going to his grave to play Dixie at his gravesite. Um, and if people came, they came, if they didn't, they didn't. And, and, and that was going to occur. We had more requests for Dixie that weekend than any time that, in fact, I don't know if we ever played Dixie again, but, <laughs> but the reality of it was, uh, the populace had a different perspective on that particular tune, uh, in that environment. And the only reason that the program director had asked us not to play it was because there was a great controversy that occurred with a high school band had used that as part of their their uh, their homecoming program, uh, and they used that particular tune. But again, people misunderstand what the context of Dixie is all about, and I say that. Uh, Everybody recognizes that as a Southern anthem. Um, it, it was a, a perpetuation of, of, of the Southern cause after the Civil War. And uh, your 20th century cartoon characters were, were designed uh, to represent the South with the, with the tune of Dixie playing in the background. So it, it has definitely taken on an identity that, probably wasn't envisioned, and I can tell you not envisioned by its author, and by the people who consider themselves the successors or the winners of, of our great civil war. And when, when you look at Lincoln's closing remarks, where, where he talked about Dixie being introduced and requesting the band to play that as inauguration, he basically says that, 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 Dixie is ours, you know, it, they've reclaimed that tune. And of course it was a particular favorite of, of, of Abraham Lincoln. So for us not to play that tune um, was certainly out of the question. Um, and if it was based on ignorance that that decision was made to, to ask us not to play it um, or, or, Irreverence, I, I really don't know, uh, but the reality of it was, uh, as victors from the from the north, from the Union side of, of and the liberation and, and of emancipation of the slaves, 
It meant a lot. It meant a lot of different things. And I still think that means the same today. And, and we do use it, um, again, in our programming when we talk about the plump performance of Dixie, that, that Lincoln's claim to Dixie is what we are actually playing, not the Southern anthem um, and, and not a perpetuation of the Southern cause. So we haven't abandoned it and we'll always play it. Um, and, and I think that, you know, folks, if they understood that perception, would, would probably feel the same because it is a great tune. But again, appropriateness comes comes into play you know and and again if you're at a um a parade where you encounter uh some of these protest groups that seem to be appearing today you might not want to incite uh a uh a reaction from the crowd to that might miscommunicate that message um so use leaving that out of a street presentation is not is not all that uh how would you put it inappropriate so a small personal story that that i have and um and brian has actually experienced this as well um playing with grand republic um earl earl battle um is our drum major he's an african-american um and he's our drum major and some of the 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 medleys that we had um, one of them had battle him of the Republic and we went into, um, some other tunes and Dixie was, was towards the end of it marching down <clears throat> the parade. I, I believe it was Westbrook, one of the musters, something like that. Um, we, we were playing through this medley and we went into Dixie and at that moment, Earl turns around, still marching. He's marching backwards at this point, and he just starts circling his face and pointing at himself <laughs> and kind of shaking his head no. You know, and, and it was kind of a, a wake-up moment for, for all of us in Grand Republic to say, you know, th- this is something that, that um, w- we have to open our eyes to um, for us specifically. I'm not saying about, about um, the whole community and, and different programming, obviously, but, you know, for us, we, we decided to take that out uh, because of the personal connection that we have with Earl and, um, you know, and just the, the kind of broader realization that, that you know, this, this is, is something that, that means more than, than just the tune to some of our own members even. Absolutely. And I, and I think that's certainly appropriate. There's no, no question about it. And that sense, it's also a term of endearment. And, and again, that that's that's really respectable in that regard. And the cases that I've encountered, um, I, I've I've had situations, and, and again, any of this material that I've done that really is off color in, in its presentation has has been through the support of academia in a lot of different cases. Uh, the music that I've done uh, is part of a Black History Studies in the University of Virginia. Uh, Professor Stephen Relton uh, worked with him down there, uh, doing a lot of the the interpretation and again the uh, the acceptance in the academic circles of of, of this particular venue, uh, New York Public Library and in New York Historical Society, um, both programs that uh, were presented during slavery in New York and uh, their previous uh, 
campaigns of recognition of black history. Uh, it was a two-year campaign in the city of New York. Uh, and that material and our material was used in, in that as well. Uh, again, nothing that I've presented hasn't been through uh, that kind of uh, scrutiny. And, and I think that that's extremely important when you start to look at that, when you talk to the black population. Um, one of the things that I'm very, uh, how would you put it, disenchanted probably is the best way uh, to look at it, is that we don't have more folks of the black community involved in what's going on here. Um, we, we have Dickerson and we have Dow and, and we embrace those cores and, 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 and I think they're phenomenal in, in their uh, perception as far as, as acceptance in our community. And uh, I think that, uh, you know, I'd love to see more of, of, of that of that presentation interacting within our history venues and with our fife and drum communities. And unfortunately, um, it doesn't it doesn't occur in, in, in a lot of cases because it just doesn't appeal to that to that to that gender. I guess. Uh, well, you know, what was really cool about this particular instance, you know, during that parade is that, you know, this was a huge and this is all spontaneous. This was not at all thought out. I mean, it was completely spontaneous and it was a huge teaching moment for Earl. And it was a huge learning moment for the rest of us. And when he did what he did, you know, and I'm not sure everybody was watching him at that particular moment, maybe looking at their feet or, you know, looking at somebody on the parade route or whatever. But anybody who saw him, I believe, got it like I did immediately. And that's what this all it's all about. Right. It's it's all about the, you know, the moments where understanding is is communicated. And we do. We need a lot more of that. Um and you know, and I hope it happens. But I, I, um, I was down in in, uh, in West Virginia for a program uh, outside of Hoppers Ferry, and uh, I happened to be doing a show on Bolivar Heights, and in it was the tune "Kingdom Come," and uh, of course, the folks aren't familiar with the tune. I mean, the song, <laughs> they won't understand how this could affect um, somebody of, of, of the black race. And there was a gentleman there by the name of George Hardy, um, who uh, was representing a, a black uh, freed or contraband unit called the Sons of Ham. And these folks were, were, were dressed in enslaved person's clothing and and representing what a freed slave or emancipated slave would have been in 1863. And I felt that I had better reach out to his organization before he heard the music that I was going to present, uh, specifically Kingdom Come, uh, because it was appropriate for the, the, the interpretation that we were doing at that event. And I went up to him and I said, uh, uh, George, I, I just want you to know that uh, 
we have a program here that might reach into some sensitivities of your population and, and the folks that are with you here today. And I, I, I need to make sure that you understand the context of why I'm doing this and how it's going to be introduced. And after I explained it all, and uh, he stood there and he looked at me and he said he appreciated my input and he'd be insulted that if I altered the program to anything other than what would have been in it, it, accurate for that particular time period. And I, I, I took that as a, a pretty strong uh, commitment on his part to understanding the music and what, what it was all about. And if anybody knows uh, the lyrics to Kingdom Come, uh, it has flagrant use of that term, Daki, and again, can be considered, uh, you know, certainly inappropriate because of the portrayal of the characters in that. But to both the white and black folk of that particular time period, it was a swan song. It was a it was an emancipation song. It was it was something that meant something to uh, the audience because now we were taking steps towards their freedom, and certainly representative of the era. To do that today, again, takes the tune and puts it into that perspective. It does not reflect on its dialect that it was used in the song. Uh, it, it's recognized simply by its by its tune, by its tune, and that's something that that crosses over, so to speak. As we were talking earlier, Dave, um, about the these crossover tunes that that seem to be acceptable, but yet um, written in a in a minstrelsy type of of, of dialect. Um, Another situation where a fellow that recently passed away, Benny White from the 54th Mass reenacting group, who screamed that song out anytime that <laughs> I came within contact of him because it was one of those things that represented to his race um, and his culture what the liberation was like of 1863. And uh, so we're certainly glad to do that. Uh, Again, uh, lyrics aside, in the, the, the dialect that was written, um, it's still a, a very empowering tune. And and we play that in jam sessions all the time. Uh, you know, you, you hear that coming from the drum venue. And uh, and it's certainly appropriate. Uh, I don't think that yeah. that's that's really uh, a tune that should be cast aside. It, it, it delivers a very strong message. Um, and uh, yeah. That's really cool. It, that's fascinating. What you know, uh, Pete, we have to have you back because we have scratched the surface of the shit you know, and we need to learn more of that for sure. Um, we do. But this is no, no BS, man. I mean, there's, there's, you, you know, we could, we could talk to you for hours. And maybe one day we will. We might want to, yeah. We, we might want to have you on as like a regular uh, session. We can just kind of dive into this one. <laughs> I, I, I no, don't play that tune. Oh, well, that's a good. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, you know, pe people people are, are very very good when it comes to that. And and you know, I lo I love the sensitivities. I love the fact that the community is sensitive and recognizing those 
those sensitivities um, by identifying a really, really, really microscopic approach towards it. Um, you know, I, I a lot of times I, I come across this information and 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 file it away in a in a category where it'll never hear the light of day, um, and and in some cases uh, I've I've just I looked at it and said, well, it's insignificant. The population in the world has moved on. It's nice to know that the, the community kind of does reflect back on these things I, occasionally. And, uh, I'll have you know, I, I, uh, I actually, on all my spare time that I've had this past week since that post went up on the Facebook page, I have done so much research on the origins of tunes just to make sure, you know, we're okay or, or if this tune works. And, and one tune that we, that we do play is Kingdom Coming. And I didn't know anything about that, so now I got to do a little bit more research. So I, it's it's been really kind of interesting because, and I and I said it before too. We just grew up in this fife and drum thing. We just played the tunes that were passed on to us. There was never any historical context to anything that we played. And and the more that we've done this, and and I and I guess it's the more you know. Uh, sensitive the the community has become and and rightfully so with with the climate of the country and all that stuff it's become a a really cool thing to really dive into the historical significance of these these uh these tunes so thank you very much this has been incredible thank you so much Pete. you're entirely welcome i've enjoyed it and and again you know it's so important for the tradition and i i think that um like i said everybody everybody's doing their part to be inoffensive and to to and to identify you know the sensitivities you don't find that in every community and you know it's just another identity that that this community has that makes people want to contribute more want to participate more in events so maybe because we're missing them so much now it's <laughs> yeah yeah that could be it's, it's no but seriously thank you for your time and your immense knowledge this has been fascinating I and mean, we we really appreciate it great i appreciate it as well Well, it looks like our most recent discussions have been focusing on power couples. Last episode, we spoke with Bill Hart and Mark Bernier. Now, granted, not the prettiest power couple you've ever seen, but uh, they did a really good interview nonetheless. But today we have a true power couple. Scott and Corinne Mitchell, veterans in our fife and drum hobby, legends in the fife and drum community. Scott was a founder of the Middlesex County Volunteers. He's been a member of the Ancient Mariners, the legendary Sons of the Whiskey Rebellion, playing next to and with some of the best of the best that Fife and Drum has ever produced. And he's a founder of the Grand Republic Fife and Drum Corps. Corinne has been a member of Sudbury Fifes and Drums, Black River, MCB. She's performed with the Rhine River Rebels and the clique Deja Vu in Switzerland. And she is a director and fife section leader of Grand Republic and is also currently the president of the company of fifers and drummers. What a resume. We're glad to have them both. Scott, Madam President, Your Royal Highness, goddess of all things fife and drum. I can go on, but I won't. Welcome to the bottom of the glass. Thank you, Brian. Sure. Glad to be here. I don't know if my ego will fit in the room anymore, but yeah. For the for those of you that are listening, Brian is now doing your Wikipedia pages for ten dollars an hour. So please sign him up. He will boost you up like no other. 
<laughs> right. I'll give you some cred that you've never had before. <laughs> hey, Thanks, well, let's just let's just jump right in. Uh, you know, uh, Brendan, if you want to, if you want to start off with question number one, uh, let's let's uh, start this discussion. Okay. <laughs> All right, we're gonna have to edit that part out. <laughs> edit. Why? Why? What happened? Well, let's start with question number one. Like we're at, we're on a dating show right now. <laughs> oh, I think that's good. Oh God, it's already a disaster. <laughs> I, yeah, honestly, it, I, this is probably the earliest that this uh, this whole interview thing has gone off the rails. So we'll, we'll try to get it back on track. <laughs> you shouldn't have said anything. All right. <laughs> hey, so tonight, yeah. You were <laughs> this. This feels funny now. You were a founding member of the Middlesex County Volunteers. What was it like starting a new drum corps, and and how cool is it to see where they are now? How how big they've grown? Oh wow, that's a great question. Um, you know, the the Middlesex County Volunteers really came out of the end of the bicentennial, right? Uh, in in the Massachusetts area, there was, you know, every every town just like in Connecticut had a had a fife and drum corps. Um, most of these were started just prior to the bicentennial. Um, and the interest of a lot of the people waned with the bicentennial. Uh, and what we found was that we started getting together with the same group of people uh, that crossed these different cores uh, to, to cover convention gigs and, and pick up uh, jobs where our cores could no longer field the people or didn't have the interest to field them. And so we had just started playing together just out of convenience. It was one or two people from each group in the area. Um, and it, and it kind of grew organically. Everyone was sort of interested in traditional sounding music. And, uh, um, you know, there wasn't much uh, that was too complicated at the time. Um, you know, gradually we started having discussions about maybe we could do, maybe we could be a little more prepared for some of these things. Hey, let's play that that thing again that we these two tunes that we played together before um and eventually it, it turned sort of turned into a fife and drum corps on its own um I, I feel great when i see them play i mean it's just it evolved into this uh amazing uh, machine of of fife and drum where where they um they ingest new members and they produce an amazing uh really high quality product and have for many years now so it's really exciting to listen to them you know, I, I've I've seen footage of of those days when you were in MCV, the early days and the like, and the core has evolved so much. I mean, just from you know uniform and uh, you know and the instruments and and all of the things you do all over the world, it's it's really amazing to see a core like that start and evolve and just not look back. It's it's really it's really phenomenal. But let me ask you a question, going back a little bit more, because I want to talk about your past a bit. And and you and I have discussed this, but tell me again what it was like to be in the Suns and play with Lemley and Pace and the McGowans and Sonny Lyons and Classy Jr. and all those amazing musicians in that Fife and Drum Corps. Um, well, <laughs> you know, uh, um I, I think I became aware of all those guys at Swede Hall one year. Duke Terreri sort of pushed me towards these guys and said, watch those guys. And amazingly, they, they kept coming back into focus over the years. And I, I'm speaking specifically about the drummers. 
Um, you know, I, my brain couldn't handle all that was going on in the Fife world at the time. But, you know, I gravitated toward the way those guys were playing. Uh, it seemed to make sense uh, um, with the, the teachers that I had, uh, 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 Richard Ruquist and, uh, you know, the way that he played and the way that those guys played all of a sudden, you know, it, it, it didn't seem like such a stretch. Um, you know, I could not conceptualize how they did it as well as they did it. Um, but, uh, to finally get the opportunity to, to be invited to play with them was, was amazing. But, you know, honestly, uh, 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 I would have to say it felt a lot different than I expected it to feel. It was, it was, uh, when I listened to it from outside, it sounded very organized and very, you know, very, um, uh, very composed and thought through and inside of it, it was like being inside of a freight train, you know, like it was this big giant engine of very loud, um, right on the edge playing. And they were often improvising dynamics and different interpretations and phrasing every time that they played. So it, it was really an adventure. It was a ride every time you got to play with them. So it was, it was yeah. quite a gift. That's that's really interesting because you and I have talked in the past about where you like the drum line to be, the Grand Republic drum line is right on the edge of falling apart. And is that really where you guys were at in the Suns when you were playing at that level? I think so. I mean, I, I certainly felt like I was just hanging on. You know, they, they had <laughs> they had years and years and years of experience uh, and the, and they could they could sort of ride the front end of that surfboard pretty hard. And uh, but to them, they had already they could play a perfect show. That was not a question. You know, these guys had been in the regimentals and the Sons of Liberty and the Mariners and, you know, during the, you know, the the explosive time in the 60s and 70s where there was so much growth in that music. Um, they, had, they had done it all. And, uh, you know, they had won the competitions. They had won the they had won the post competition scene. Uh, uh, so for them, it was it was about this, this roller coaster ride that they they got to play together on rare occasions. And when they got to play together, they could relax and let it all hang out. And that's that's a really uh, that's a really rewarding feeling. And I feel like today I can get just as much out of a rehearsal as I can uh, a performance in front of lots of people uh, because of that type of attitude. Hmm. So, Corinne, can you tell me about your your first core? I'm assuming that it was Sudbury. I know that that you you played in Sudbury. I think your 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 time was a little bit different from when Kara was in. Um, but can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, um, Sudbury Ancient Fife and Drum Company was my first Fife and Drum core. Uh, Deirdre Sweeney, who's a, a fifer still in Sudbury, although I think she plays the drums now. Um, when we were eleven-ish, we're taking recorder lessons together. And she did a dozen different things, one of them being fife and drum. And my grandmother and I tagged along with her and her mother one day to come see Sudbury. And 11-year-old me wasn't that entertained, but I took home a fife and proceeded to stick it in the closet and lose it for a year. Um, a year later, I pulled it out and played a few songs on the little you know, role of how to play your fife. And uh, some of them actually sounded good. And I was like, all right, now, now I want to do this. So I went to my grandmother and I said, hey, you know that fife and drum thing that we went to last year? Could we go to that again? And she was just like, of course. 
and unbeknownst to me, she had been going all along. So she had continued to go to the, the fife and drum thing because she thought I would eventually be interested in it. And she was right. So I, um, I picked up the fife. I just started learning tunes and I couldn't put them down. And uh, really, I was only in Sudbury for about maybe three or four years. But during that time, um, Deirdre and I were just like little ferocious fifers. We didn't stop. We would play all the time. And I recall one time driving from Worcester uh, Massachusetts up to the Waterbury Muster and Deirdre and I played Fife the entire ride up and my grandmother is a saint um, because she didn't say one word she just drove and we fight the whole way um, so yes every was my first core and lots of playing. Deirdre is a fabulous dresser by the way really really outstanding I've never seen her dressed poorly that's worth something she's a very incredible musician as well yeah, actually, we we have the pleasure of <laughs> Deirdre at uh, at uh, William Diamond, and uh, she teaches some of the advanced fifers there. Wow! Yep. Man, it doesn't take take long for Corinne to put Brian in his place. <laughs> uh, she does. She does it all the time. All the time. But yeah, sorry. <laughs> You know, it's it's just like a few choice words. That's all it takes, and she has them. <laughs> hey, Scott, oh, in our last episode, Mark Bernier talked a bit about wanting more marches and less jigs and reels and fife and drum. I always thought of the Grand Republic as a core that really drives that town band, you know, marching feel home. Do you agree that our music could use more marches and less jigs and reels? I don't have a firm position on that, <laughs> but but looking at our repertoire, I think we have a fair number of marches. Uh, you know, we have some cakewalks, we have some other things. I I, I think there's a probably a, a a diversity problem from tune types. You know that we we uh, heard from, where where jigs and reels tended to be something we defaulted to. I remember when I was in MCV, we did a study of one of the, um, or a couple of the Fife manuscripts from the Revolutionary War. And we kind of looked at, we said, okay, well, what are, the, what are these made of? You know, what's what's in here? And and like a third of the tunes were in three, four. And we're like, well, we don't play any tunes in three, four, right? Like, how, how do you do that? We And so we had to try and figure out how to, you know, how to work that into the repertoire to, to kind of take on some more of that um, diversity. And there was, you know, they, there was common time marches and, and cut time things. Um, but, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of tempos that we shy away from in fife and drum, you know, so, somewhere along the line, we, we, we also got into this thing where we play, everyone plays at 96 to hundred beats a minute. And I, maybe that was a bicentennial, I don't know, but uh, I, I would say that, um, you know, before, 1960 that is not a tempo that a lot of courts played at you know they were playing much faster 110 was was pretty standard so mark actually brought that up as well when, when he was talking about the um you know his thoughts about um jigs reels and marches but he, he specifically mentioned the 1890s which which i thought was interesting given grand republic that's kind of our our time frame um and he, he talked a lot about how um you know, may possibly at that point, marches were almost everything. And, and there weren't really any of these other, um, you know, 
shorter tunes. I'm not even really sure the difference between all these different types of songs, to tell you the truth. I don't know the difference between a Planksty and a Reel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, if you look at the 1890s, there's probably just as many. What's the, what's the name? Shottish? Uh, yeah. Shottish. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure the pronunciation, but there's probably just as many of them as there are marches. And yet that's a form we kind of never play now. Um, sure. But if you think if you think about what sort of crept into our fife and drum repertoire, like Old Saybrook, it's it's a, that's a band tune. I mean, no one really knows where that one comes from, but that sounds like a band tune. That does not sound like a fife and drum, jig reel kind of derived thing. So maybe that points to some of the diversity that we, you know, we may have left behind. I I, I think I, I I recall being at the Creek Hall one time, and they have that that um, the, the shade that they pull down that has all the tune names on it. And you look at those tunes and it's not jigs and reels all the way down. It's, there's a lot of marchy stuff. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of popular music in there. And I, I think, um, you know, that's with Grand Republic, that's some of the stuff we're trying to figure out how to work in uh, so that it can be, you know, fun, like, you know, hot town in the old time, uh, hot time in the old town tonight, as an example, it's, it was a popular tune. Uh, and a lot of groups played it, but nobody plays it in fife and drum anymore. Yeah, that's one of my favorite tunes growing up when I was a kid. I was so happy when you guys picked that. <laughs> it was uh, an old favorite back home. <laughs> so, uh, I actually have a little bit of a deep question, and this is this is for both of you. Um, so fife and drum has changed quite a bit since you guys started. Um, jam sessions have you know, gotten a bit messier, um, people are playing in multiple cores. Um, so do you see this as an evolution of the art form? Is it something that's saving cores from dissolution? Um, how do you see the evolution and adaptation of fife and drum going into the future? And do you want to see a change to that trajectory? <laughs> wow, geez. Everybody, everybody holding their nose. <laughs> Well, that's, that's kind of a hard question there, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> Man, talk about loading it up. Well, you know, Damn. sure, things have changed. and But I think, you know, 30 years ago, they would have said, geez, things have really changed, right? And before that, they would have said things have really changed. There isn't a fight and drum manual that was ever written that doesn't start with, I'm writing this because these yahoos today don't know how to play, right? They all say the same thing, right, in the, in the forward. I'm writing this because... It's a lost art form. <laughs> you get 10 of those in a row and you go, wow, what were they seeing? You know, it, it all looks like uh, historical stuff to us. Right. But clearly that, you know, that things change. Uh, uh, I, I would say fife and drum cores are less busy. People tend to play in more groups than they used to because they have time. Right. They have where they have the freedom or they have the transportation. Um you know, I think people didn't used to write down music as often as they do now, which makes mobility a little bit easier as well. Um, I don't, I don't necessarily see those things as bad things; they just are. Um, uh, but um, you know, jam sessions can still be just as organized as they once were. Uh, uh, you know, I recall Duke uh, Terreri, um sort of organizing things and and keeping things on track. And I've seen Alan Reed do the same uh, in jam sessions. Um, uh, it just depends on who's there and what kind of environment it is. But uh, there, you, 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 I think you always saw groups playing their own repertoire at jam sessions. 
Um, now it's a little more stark because fewer of the people know each other's medleys. Do you think well, you know, media kind of plays into that a bit as well? Just just having the ability to see these things on, on YouTube? Sure. sure. Yeah. I, I would think that people had would have, today would have more of an ability. I, I, in some ways, they do. I mean, if you call you know, a classic like Brian Baru 20 years ago, there would have been, you know, a, a core people of people that played in that group that would know it and would play it. Now you have people that maybe went to camp and played it at camp. Uh, you have people that learned it on YouTube or uh, bought the book and, and, and read it. Um, so I think, I, I think it's a, you know, it's a smattering of, of, of all of these things, but I don't, I don't see it as necessarily bad. You know, and speaking of Bill Hart, he's a guy currently that can try to get a jam session back on track. You know, call a tune, make sure everybody hears it, start it off and get it all going at the same at the same time. You know, and um, and, and, and I've seen him do that when it's just a, at a point where he sees a, a jam session that has potential, you know, because sometimes you look at a jam session and it has potential or it's just a train wreck and maybe you need to walk away. And come back to it later on when things change, tempos change, and the like. But um, but yeah, that's but that's real important. And, and you do see the evolution from 20 years ago to today. To what are the tunes getting played? You know, who are the who are the people playing them, and how cohesive is it? You know, on on the field and at the jam session. But you know, speaking of playing and speaking of writing and the like, uh, and it, this is going to be another tough one for you, Scott. Um, but you have written some beautiful, beautiful drum scores. I mean, some of the, some of the absolute best I've ever, uh, played. Now I believe they're going to stand the test of time. And you wrote some of them quite a long time ago and they have already stood the test of time as a rudimental drumming composer. What would you like your legacy to be? <laughs> well, again, I think I'd like you to write my LinkedIn profile. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that'd be really good. But, I mean, you know, my, my legacy is not up to me to determine <laughs> if there is one, <laughs> you know, my legacy might be that guy wrote too many lefts, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. But you never know what you're going to get with this stuff. Um, you know, again, it's up for others to, to say, but I can speak to, you know, when I think of people uh, in that have written, written music for our community um, that that kind of uh, inspire me and make me want to maybe contribute to that dialogue over time is, you know, you know, the, the last parks arrangements uh, at classy is a, is a huge favorite of mine. Um, and, and I think about um, what they wrote, and I mean, I don't think I can play the, the last phrase of uh, Devil's Flute without laughing every time going, you know, that's some of the best writing I've ever seen. It's balanced. It's cool. It's innovative. Yeah, uh, agreed. It sounds traditional, but it, you know, who played that before? Right. And, you know, I, I find myself, uh, you know, kind of giggling at the inside jokes that some of these guys would tell. They would take something traditional and they sort of twist it up a little bit and kind of give it back to you in a, in a form that was still digestible. It's still read as, as traditional music, but, and I think they refer to it as ancient easy, you know, like, it, Hey, it shouldn't be hard. You shouldn't be straining to play this. Um, 
you know, to me, that's the stuff that I like, you know, you know, I don't put myself in, in those guys league at all, but, uh, uh, that's the, that's the kind of thing that I, that I aspire to. I don't write complicated stuff anymore. Uh, I don't listen to complicated stuff. I appreciate it when I hear it. Um, I'm not a drum solo guy. It's not, it's not something I'm really interested in. Uh, but when these guys play something lyrical or write something lyrical that, that many players could make sound the way some of these things sound, then I know that they really understood not only the music, but the players as well. And that's what I'm working on doing is getting closer to that. Hmm. Yeah, fascinating. Well, Corinne, uh, we'll send the question back to you. We're uh, we're obviously in unprecedented times. Uh, can you speak on the challenges the company museum is facing during this time, and uh, and what can the community do to help, if anything? Um, so yeah, th there's there's definitely uh, challenges that are presented at this this time, um, as well as just the continuing challenge that we have year to year. Um, the specific challenges that we're facing right now are that uh, we don't have any events. So normally we have our Tuesday night concert series and the Sunday after Deep River and Westbrook, um, which would actually would have been yesterday. Uh, so those are events that we would rely on folks to come to, um, you know, buy food, participate, you know, maybe make some donations. Um, we haven't been able to open up the museum um, just due to all the, the state limitations um, and you know, even if we we were to to figure out what they they mean for us, um, it, it would be very challenging to to have the volunteer base and f funds really to to make it possible to have the building open. So that is one big challenge um, for us. Um, you know, in, in general, just uh, maintaining our, our funding has been a challenge. Um, we rely on membership. Um, so we've got about 60 cores and maybe 100 people um, that are members. That's a small base to make our budget off of. So we'll be having a, a fundraiser coming out this year, um, which is, we'll be, you'll, you'll hear more information about that a little later on, not tonight, but, uh, you know, in the, the coming weeks. Um, you know, we've determined what our operating budget is and what we need to, to cover that gap. Um, Another thing that we could use, and it's not so much we can do it this year, again, with all the social distancing, is more involvement from people. Um, so, you know, youth involvement and retention, love to have more younger folks. Um, our demographic is skewed um, over 45. So about 70% of the membership um, is over 45 years old. And if you go over 60, it's about 40% of the membership. So um, it's very small on the younger end. So getting more younger folks involved, um, and once we can open our doors again, having people come. Yeah, just another follow-up question that many people ask, and you hear this kind of grumbling through the community, you know, what can the company do for them? And and I, I just I wanted to hear what your thoughts and maybe even Scott too. What what does that what does that mean? I, I, I always found that to be sort of a an empty, empty question because it's pretty obvious what the company can do for me. Uh, but what do you guys feel about that? Um, so me personally, I just I, I I wonder what their expectations are and if they've looked at what the company does offer. Um, and maybe what we do offer is not what they're interested in. And, and you know, that's perfectly OK. But um, 
I think that the company does offer a lot more. So just as an example, over the past year, we've published five books. Um, so the Roy Watress's The Final Chapter and John Benoit's uh, four books. So that's we have those available on our website. And so we're a source for information, um, you know, the, the current music. Um, and then, Scott, I'll let you talk to this. But with the archives, there's a lot of digitization going on. And I think that's incredible. Yeah, yeah. Um when when Kyle Forstoff um, started working in the archives, he, he was drawn immediately to a lot of the recordings that existed. And there's there's quite a bit on magnetic tape, which, as you might know, has a, you know, the clock is ticking on that stuff. It, it only lasts a certain amount of time. And most of it was is past its due date, if you will. Um, so it became a priority to, to digitize some of that um, and, and get working on that. Some of it's badly labeled. Some of it you have to digitize before you know what it is because it's five different recordings. Um, there's some there's some gold on there, and so we're working with Kyle to uh, to share that with the community. And obviously, we need to take out things that were commercially produced and and, and duped onto tape. You know, it was the it was the 70s. Everyone had a reel to reel, and we're we're dumping their LP onto the reel to reel uh, so they could be swanky. Um, there's a fair amount of that uh, in some of the collection. Uh, but there's also some real prizes. There's there's a series of interviews that uh, you know had never been made public. You know Earl Sturtz, um, uh, 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 Father Regan from um, the Sons of Liberty, uh, I mean, the, uh, Buck Soisman, just incredible. Uh, uh, you, you know, hearing these people interviewed uh, and, and hearing them interviewed by, you know. Uh, Ed Olson, uh, uh, you know, uh, you name it, uh, the cast of characters, Sonny Lyons did a bunch of interviews. Um, they're, they're pretty remarkable in terms of what they tell about our community. So, you know, it's a, it's a big effort to get that stuff up online. And, um, uh, and I think it's a, real, um, it's a real valuable piece of our, our collective history and it's unique to the company. So, you know, to ask what, to, to answer directly, what can the company do? I mean, the company really is, exists to preserve our collective heritage and to promote fife and drum. Um, that's what it can do. And, and um, you know, it would ideally we could get um, a little bit more financial support from the community so that we could do that a little bit faster, better, whatever the, the term is you, you want to use. But, you know, it takes money to, to duplicate each one of these things. And we, we often will, will sort of auction off, hey, who wants to pay for this tape? And someone from the executive committee will will raise their hand. Yeah, th things shouldn't really be like that, of course. Um, I almost wonder, like, are, are there are there some simple things that, that you know, short of, of lifetime memberships or even um, annual memberships, are there simple things of, of ways that people can donate? Is there, is there, are there systems that people can use um, are there, you know, kind of creative ways to, to address that? Sure. I mean, first of all, um, uh, you know, everyone can be an individual member of the company and show their support that way. Sure. It's $25 a year. It's, it's uh, you know, right now the, the membership is fairly low. It has been declining over the past 10 years. Um, it, it is not the lack of an ancient times being mailed to you that's causing that. It was doing that while the ancient times was being printed. So it's, you know, it's it's a willingness to part with you know a week's worth of Starbucks uh, for for a year to support something that that means something to you. 
Um, there's that. There's certainly the ability to do that very quickly on the website. Uh, you can also uh, provide a donation. Um, you can direct that donation towards the camp or towards the building or towards the general operating funds, and that will be respected. Uh, we're, we're required to respect that uh, that earmark if you so choose to do that. Um, there's lots of ways for sure, and and even just come out to events. I mean, honestly, we have a lot of uh, you know in in the in the old times when we used to be able to have concerts, uh, uh, we had uh, you know we had people uh, that were five miles away saying, well, I'm going to listen to it because you're live streaming it. Actually, it would be much better if you came down, actually. Uh, uh, th there's a much more benefit collectively for us to share this together than, than sitting at home and listening to it as a, a spectator sport. Well, and, and something that you had said earlier, you were talking about some of the some of the archives and some of the interviews and things like that. That's one of the things that, that we've recently been talking to, um, you know, be, Brian, Brendan, and I just about about what we can do with some of these interviews. Hopefully, this interview will eventually make its way into those types of archives um, to, to be saved. Hopefully, we can interview a lot more people that that you know the fife and drum community is going to find interesting. Um, but I, I do have a question about the uh, the um, <clears throat> we, we had talked about some some individual membership um, challenges, things like that, but. What about the core level? Um, has that has that seen that same sort of decline, or is that is that also kind of in the same ballpark? Sure. Uh, you know, historically, about two thirds of the cores out there have been members of the company, and there's one third that sits out there outside of it. I think it's about the same now, so I don't think it's particularly low. I think right now, you know, fife and drum has ebbs and flows in in popularity. Uh, I wouldn't say we're in a total down. Uh, curve, but it's uh, it, it's probably on the upswing from a few years ago, actually. Um, uh, but you know, I would say that right now we have more cores that are dues-paying members than we have in ten years. Oh, that's awesome! That is actually, yeah, no, that is that is good because that's an upswing. That's good. Um, you know, fife and drum, unfortunately, and we've all seen it, and 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 we've looked at it, and it it it's sad to us, I believe, but it has really become a little bit politically divided on social media recently. Uh, how, how is the company, and this is a tough one for you, how is the company navigating that divide that just seems to be getting worse and worse as things go on? And I'm not just talking, you know, fife and drum, I and mean, we're, you know, we're talking on, on a bunch of different levels, but fife and drum is uh, experiencing this as well. So are there any any thoughts about how to kind of bridge that or navigate that divide at all? I mean, so I, when I look at this, I, I don't think we're divided. So I look at the, the fife and drum community as a whole, and I think about, you know, we all really want the same thing. We, we like to play the music. Um, we all want to be together. We want to socialize. And right now we can't. And so we're all hurting. Um, and even if that wasn't part of this, we're all affected by COVID-19 right now in some way, shape or form. So not only are we struggling just with our, our fife and drum you know, community, but just personally, everybody has been affected in, in some way. Um, and I know that you know when, when I'm sad or when I'm struggling with something, I wanna play music, I wanna be with my friends. So right. one of my outlets is, is gone right now. So we have 
time to think and time to talk and vent. <laughs> and, you know, um, I just, uh, you know, I, I think uh, some of the, the divide that might be being seen is, you know, anytime an event gets canceled, people start speaking up um, about, you know, I, w I wish we were having this and everybody wishes we were having this. Um, but before we can get to, you know, should we have this? I wish we were having this. It, it's can we? And that's something that all the event coordinators um, have been thinking about over the year uh, is, can we have this? Does the state allow it? Okay, does the state allow it? Does the, can I get a permit for it? What are the ins and outs if I do this? Is the event gonna be even remotely the same as it was supposed to be? Um, so uh, I think we're all frustrated. I don't think we're divided. I think we all want the same thing and it honestly it just sucks that we can't get together. But um, I'd rather put off events this year to know that I could continue playing them for many years to come. On, on the upside, on the upside, no one's arguing about calf heads versus synthetic heads this year. <laughs> That's true. That is true. That's a good, good, good point. We're, we're kind of picking something else to uh, obsess about, but I, you know, yeah, I think Corinne's right. We all want the same thing, is which is to be back at it. And you know, the method of getting there might be a little bit different, but I, I you can hear it in everybody's tone that they're that they're 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 sick of this and they're ready to move on. But uh, at the same time. You know, we've had the privilege of working with a number of event coordinators over the year uh, to make sure that they were connected to each other and understood what the other event coordinators were considering as they lead up to their events. And 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 unfortunately, for the most part, their their cancellation of their own events. Um, the majority of them really have not been a question of should we. It's you can't. You it's not permitted by the local town or, or the, you know, that you can't get a permit to do a large gathering like that. So it's, you know, we should, we should remember that this isn't, um, I like red, you like blue. This isn't anything like that. This is, it's a public health issue and the, and the towns are saying, no, you can't have that event. So if we can't have that event, so stinks, let's move on, you know, mow your lawn. I mean, what's a, what's the, what's the joke about Fife and How do you know a Fife and drum? person uh uh you know lives in your neighborhood they have a mullet lawn it's short in the front and long in the back right <laughs> they, mow the, they mow the back on sunday right i mean this this is the first year that my lawn's been mowed right on, on the weekends it, hey we, we this is what we have it's what we have to deal with you know I, I and i think um you know people like greg bacon are doing amazing things trying to get people to think um creatively and be um you know, progressive and and uh, and uh, promote songwriting within the community. I think that those are things that we can do. That 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 certainly sits within our our power. I I do sense though that a lot of people lack the energy right now. Uh, is a general sort of oh, this is unbearable. Uh, and so I, I think over time, as we as we uh, you know, we're not quite done with this yet. And over the over the winter, I think we'll see more people in participating in those sort of things. So, Scott, you mentioned a little earlier in the interview that MCV was a baby of the bicentennial uh, 1976, you know, that, that big boom in drum corps. We have the, Dave, what is it again, the semi-quincentennial? Yep. Right? The first time? Damn, that's crazy. So, for both of you, what are some things that you think that the company can do to help boost drum corps, particularly in, in 2026? 
Throwing you on the spot. I know this is something that we discussed at the e-board, but we haven't really. And I actually might be throwing myself under the bus because I might be like a part of that committee. I think you are on that committee, Brandon. <laughs> well, I guess I'm. I guess I'm recruiting you guys now. So, yeah, I mean that is is something that we we've started talking about. Um, it is not something that has caught us by surprise. I wouldn't say that we've made any strong or swift actions towards anything. Um, but it is an in discussion. Um, I know that we do our, and this is, this does relate. We do a strategic um, planning session about every two or so years to just sort of check on, you know, what our goals are, where things are. And that has been put on that. Um, and I think that, you know, at our, our next one, which gosh, I think is either this or next year, yeah. um, that will definitely come up higher on, on the list of priorities as, as to what to do. So the shorter answers, I, I don't have anything specific, but you know we do reach out to the community as well with our surveys, and hopefully that can get some information. Yeah, it, the, I mean the, the the groundwork is being laid. I mean, you know, the transition of the company books to an on-demand printer, uh, so that we can scale that without a significant outlay of funds from the company. Um, you know, the the publication of new books. Uh, now, all all of this stuff is, and and the especially the the presentation of the material of the archives uh, online, really all is about sharing our what we have collectively, right? So, um, you know, until a couple of years ago, you and until you until you walked into the archives and got a, a, a guided tour from the archivist, you wouldn't know what was up there, um, uh, and and in fact. It's, it's pretty astounding what is up there uh, and what is available and, and what's available to people who are researching their core or a period in history or, or whatever. Um, it's, it's, it's astounding. But obviously making that material available uh, so that uh, one, one of the questions that we get a lot uh, and, and you know, I, I think you guys can certainly help with this is, hey, look, I'm starting a core, uh, uh, Tanya Morissette, st starting a core in Ithaca, New York. Uh, I've got a drum instructor, but he's never played in a fife and drum corps before. What do I tell him? You know, how do I how do I get him that information? And that really is the question that I think George Carroll helped answer for a lot of people who came into the bicentennial. He literally gave you the manual to say, play this, play it like this. Here's how it goes. And and it isn't the answer to everything, but certainly making that stuff available to people. Um, Putting it into context with for them so that they understand that it's an interpretation of a, you know, an 18th century manual or a 19th century manual, is is kind of helpful. And and you know, frankly, I, I went through 20 years of fife and drum not being able to understand why some groups played one way and other groups played another way. You know, and, you know, I, I was from Massachusetts. Nobody wore vests vests and you know, uh, you know. What are the necky things? I forget what they're called, but jabos, right? We didn't wear those up there, right? We wore sort of traditional historical costumes, and and you know we were like, well, that's a vest corps, right? <laughs> right? That to us that that was a totally different tradition, and I, I couldn't reconcile it. But it it turns out, you know, that's a tradition with its own lineage and its own history, and until someone sort of separated it for me, I really couldn't tell what I was looking at, and and I hear that a lot of from a lot from people who are new to fife and drum uh and 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 that's how we have to think about this stuff right it isn't just for us it's for the anybody who's interested right uh uh we need to find a way to express that in a way that they can understand it 
and we can welcome them into this. So we're uh, talking a little bit about the semi-quincentennial almost as if it's a, it's a point in time um, when in reality, you know, the, it seems to me that, that things need to build up to that point when, when 26 comes around and the war went until um, 1783. So I'm not sure how long these things are really going to last. If it's generally one year, I wasn't alive in 1976. So, so I don't really know, know how all that stuff works, but um, do you think that we're going to see um, more interest in schools and in um, community organizations um, naturally, do you think that it needs to be fostered to, to kind of um, help that build um, as we get closer to that event? That's a good question. Um, when you when you look at this historically, the um, yeah, I, I can I can look at it through the lens of the company in one sense, and and the membership in the company for, from a core perspective sort of started about 10 years to really blossom about 10 years before the bicentennial. And you would think it would go away with the bicentennial, but it actually peaked. It got higher after the bicentennial, which it, which to me is fascinating. That, that means people really liked it and they really got into it and they kept doing it for, for the sake of doing it. Um, but, you know, you can do something for 10 or 15 years as an adult when you started as an adult. And that's probably when you're going to put it down and move on to something else, right? Some some of us have been doing it since we're, you know, six, seven, eight years old, and you know we're going to be doing this, uh, you know, until the day before they plant us, um, and that's just the way we're we're wired, right? But not everyone is like that, so we will have these members of the community that 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 join us for a while and then and then leave, and that's perfectly okay. Um, what what would be helpful is if we all spoke the same language and we didn't lose kind of who we are in the process. And if, if you think about the notion of creating the company books, um, you know, company book one and two was in 1973 and 75, I think. Um, uh, they came at a really interesting time where people, they, they really needed a common repertoire so that when they got together, they could actually play together. Um, and... Uh, that has really had a tremendously good effect. Now, it doesn't help that, you know, there's like almost no bass drumming in the, in the company books, right? It doesn't help new people that are, that are, that are fresh to this. You say, well, just don't play the Greystones or, you know, you could, you could give all kinds of instruction, but it would fall a little bit short if someone's a trained musician, right? In terms of what should I do? At the same time, you can't sort of pretend that everything is all scripted out and, you know, all the dynamics are very traditional because they're really not. It's very regional, uh, regionalized. And, um, you know, what, what, when I uh, when I give clinics, we talk a lot about regional styles, and how they affect your interpretation. And um, I think that's an important part of this. It's, it's a difficult part for the company to say, hey, you know, we want to provide some materials for young players. Well, what are you going to do? Get a guy from New York, a guy from Connecticut or a guy from Massachusetts to play? Well, you're going to get a kind of a different thing. So, so it, it takes a little extra thinking to, to be truly representative and informative at the same time. Yeah. You know, I bought uh, each of those company books. I probably bought each of those maybe four or five times. You know, they got, got lost, beer got spilled on them, whatever. You know, if I had my receipts, I would try and get some reimbursement from the company, but 
I can't find them. They're like 40 years old. Okay, say something, Brian. You're not seeing that reimbursement. <laughs> no, no. That'd be tough. Get in line, but I don't. Yeah, you could get in line. Plus, I think they were only like $5, you know, or something crazy like that. Um, let's go back a little bit. We talked a little bit about early days of MCV. I'm I'm interested in the in the early days of Grand Republic because I wasn't part of the core at the time. Um, but I really got intrigued by you guys when <clears throat> I watched you at a Westbrook muster, I think 2008, 2009 or something like that. But what were those early days like with Grand Republic? And and what did you and Benoit collaborate on? What did you agree on? What did you disagree on? Probably a lot. <laughs> they, they were definitely fun times i can at least say that <laughs> yeah, they, were, they were fun yeah you know uh brian a, a lot of the the early um whiskey boys thing really uh, sorry uh grand republic thing actually came out of the whiskey boys um you know the first couple of medleys were actually written for the whiskey boys and we played them a few times um and and certainly a lot of the repertoire came from Ed Olson and the McGowans. Uh, uh, there was a there was a point at which John and I had decided that we wanted to do a little bit more writing than the Whiskey Boys were looking to play. You know, they weren't they weren't a repertory core. They were they were hanging out guys core, and they would sing tunes together. Uh, and eventually, they would put pick up a fife and figure out what note it started on. And and you know, the drum part would be written, and they're just trying to figure out what key the fifes were in. It was it was. You know, it was a really interesting environment, but it certainly wasn't a, um, you know, a high volume writing environment. Um, and so John and I were talking about, well, what, what could we do? And we really liked the sound that they had. And so we actually got together with the um, with the McGowan brothers and uh, and Ed Olson. We brought a case of beer uh, and a tape recorder down to the McGowan brothers garage. And um, we said, basically, what tunes do you, do, do you wish you had played but never did? And they actually gave us most of the first season's worth of music was stuff that they mentioned in that one get-together. Um, and so for, for us, it was you know an, an exploration, getting to know that music, understanding what these guys were hearing that they, that they wish they had been able to play, and then trying to make sense of it. Um, and then comes the task that every every new core has is how do you get people interested to come and do this versus the thing that they're already doing. Um, you know, a lot of our, a lot of our folks were, were related <laughs> or have played with each other for a very long time or were, were close friends of those people. And, uh, and so it was more a social club at first than it was a, a performance thing. Awesome. Cool. So Corinne, um, I've got a question for you that, so the coronavirus has certainly altered and eliminated a lot of fife and drum events in 2020. How do you think that fife and drum is going to reestablish itself in 2021? And what do you think might change forever in how we parade, rehearse, and muster? Well, I, I don't think I'll be sharing anyone's drink anymore. Um, <laughs> um, uh, and all, all seriousness, so Seriousness, all seriousness, though, um, that that's a difficult question. And I know that that just sounds like I'm, I'm passing it off, but it's really challenging to look that far ahead. Um, you know, if you had talked to me uh, earlier this year, um, 
you know, so when I left, we went to Switzerland, we were there for three weeks. When I left for Switzerland, I was planning on playing during Fosnacht. Uh, one week into the trip, um, everything got canceled. Uh, I did not see that coming. And then all of a sudden, everything started just turning upside down. When I came home, I was sent home from work and I was like, oh, it'll be like, what, two or three weeks? I, I'm now five months working from home. Um, I'm going to wow. work from home until the end of this year, at least. So I have no idea. If you asked me at the beginning of the year, did I think I'd be working from home for the rest of the year? No, uh, it, it is. Everything is changing all the time. Um, you know, we've got these phased reopenings and all these criteria on how you can do things. We went out to lunch for the first time um, in five months, and that was just this amazing uh Thing that was going on with like distancing and you go this direction and this gets cleaned and you touch this but you don't touch that and order the food on your phone <laughs> and these are people these are people that are paid they're getting money to do this they're making money it is very well organized um and they have very clear guidelines now you look at what we do with fife and drum parades you know i, I don't know how you would you know, socially distance a parade, um, you know, so, so we're relying on so much changing over the next year to be able to, to get back to these events that are just so close together, um, like physically close. It's, it's difficult to spread these out. So I'm not trying to, to, to pass off answering the question. It's just so difficult to look that far out. Um, you know, I, I think there will be some more online based stuff. I think that's a direction that we're going to have to really do a lot of focusing on. Um, you know, Scott and I teach the William Diamond Junior Fife and Drum Corps, and I think we're really lucky that we're a fifer and a drummer in the same house because we can do ensemble with them. Same with Grand Republic. Um, so we can have our sectionals, and then we can have ensemble, and you get to hear a fife and a drum together. Not everybody has that luxury. Um, so we'll be seeing changes, I think, to, to how we operate and how we do things, and maybe some more online stuff. But it's yeah, you know. It, 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 that, that's an interesting idea, though, is like not everything that's happened is is bad, right? There's some things that are definitely bad for us all, right? Uh, but uh, we were looking over the notes uh, the other day, and um, we asked our instructors, hey, you know, with William Diamond, hey, go go out and offer your, you know, your time to the students to, to do one-on-one -on -one lessons. It, in the past, it was, you know, they could fit one or two in before a rehearsal. Um, now they they have five and six a week um, for each of these instructors. We we looked at it the other day. Since April, we've done over 300 private lessons just for this group of kids, and that's that's a, an astounding amount of one-on-one -on -one time for these these kids who who wouldn't have gotten this kind of time uh, uh, prior. So I mean, uh, and they're all actually showing um, a, a, a skill advancement because of that. So not everything is bad. I think we have to focus on what we can do that is good, um, that is positive. Um, it, it's really difficult though. Uh, I, one of the biggest concerns that I have is that when we get together, we're used to behaving a certain way with each other at these events. And it's hard not to slip into that really quick. And uh, so, you know, the social conventions need to be pretty strongly established before we can actually get together effectively. Well, and so some, something that I've noticed, like we've talked to a lot of people through this podcast, but also um, what I do for a living, I, I, I'm on the phone quite a bit with a lot of um, variety of people throughout the day, and mostly in fife and drum or um, interested in rudimental drumming. And there's a hell of a lot of passion out there right now. 
you know, and, and may, maybe some of that that time that people are spending at home has kind of reinvigorated them in some way. But even without these events, there, there's there's a ton of passion and passionate people out there that 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 are really you know getting more getting deeper into this music or getting into it in the for the the very first time. Kind of an awkward time to, to get into it, but you know, <laughs> we'll, we'll do what we can, right? And I, and I know we we uh, the Connecticut Patriots. We've actually re, uh, just gained two new fifers, and, and I know other groups have gained more members as well because they have nothing better to do. And, and these online rehearsals, while we all know how much of a pain they can be, they're really, really, really helpful in this time to sort of to gain some sort of a, a you know normalcy to what we're going through. Yeah, I, you're right, Brendan. The cores that can't figure out how to use this platform productively and in a way that, that provides some feedback and, and uh, uh, is, is interesting to people, they're going to actually do better out of this. So, so really it is, you know, I think you are going to, the longer this goes on, you, you are going to see some cores who are very effective, you know, uh, you know growing because of this type of uh, uh, success they're, they're seeing. And and I sat in on a William Diamond uh, Zoom rehearsal, I think like three weeks ago, and and they brought you into this waiting room, and there was a moderator there. It was like incredible. I, it was just so well organized. It was it was kind of sick, actually. <laughs> We're really lucky that one of our, our parents is a um, she's a an online teacher, and uh, prior to COVID. Um, so she is like super, trainer, yeah. super Zoom person. It, it blew me away. I, I couldn't believe the, the the level of detail that was put in, into the, the rehearsals and and just making a, a really you know awful, uncomfortable situation into as, as something as comfortable as you could possibly make it. So you know, obviously the company is doing a really good job with with uh, giving out information on on what to look for and how to do uh, these Zoom rehearsals, and it's been been really great. The work that you guys have done with the company has been absolutely incredible. So just wanted to say that. Thank you. Thank you. That is true, <clears throat> and it's incredible internationally too. Uh, you know, we talked about you mentioned Switzerland just a, a couple of minutes ago, and Switzerland is a um, th- that's a bit of a sore spot for us all because we should have been there, you know, earlier this month enjoying, you know, an amazing, you know, muster and uh, an amazing time with a lot of friends. Um, but that didn't happen. So, but you guys, you both have, have spent a lot of time in Switzerland. You have a lot of friends there. And, and I know this has evolved over the years, you know, going back, you know, 50 years or so. So what do you think, their impression is of American fife and drum, and how do you think Swiss fife and drum, it you know, is doing right now? Well, <laughs> uh, I think the important context to have on all this is the, the city of Basel specifically has about four hundred cliques within the city limits. That's the number that I heard, and about ten thousand people that actively participate in Fasnacht. That's an amazing number for a city that's, I don't know, New London sized. I, I, I'm not, not sure what the right size city to compare that to is. But I mean, we're talking, we're talking about, um, you know, if you can imagine walking through New Haven and every other block seeing a sign that says, you know, the second governor's foot guard, fife and drum, the ancient mariners, the, you know, the Connecticut Patriots, seeing that literally as you walk down the street, not only do we, 
we have no context for that because it's 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 actually still actively part of the culture, right? And here, our our fife and drum is slightly marginalized uh, culturally. Um, it once was the centerpiece of of, uh, uh, of a certain amount of culture, but I think now it's sort of another another kind of hobby type thing. Um, so I think the first context is. Um, when we talk to people that play American style music um, over there, I mean, they love the music. They, they're inspired by it. They they listen to all the groups over here. They enjoy it. Um, and they spend a lot of time trying to uh, stylistically play, you know, in a way that, that works, you know? Uh, so I think uh, they're all generally very positive um, on on what we do. And likewise, you know, if, if you look at, you know, the five Swiss cores that you could think of, they're all easily within the top 20 cores skill level uh, playing the ancient style anywhere, right? So they're playing at a very, very high level. Um, but the, the underpinning of this really is the clique system, which is really quite strong, which, which, which is all about training people up from when they're very, very young and then keeping them involved. And... Um, and I'd say the one big difference between there and here, beyond the sort of density of all this stuff, you know, there's there's more there's more cliques in in a couple block space than there is in all of New England, you know. Um, but the, the 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 biggest the biggest delta here is, you know, they they don't see, um, uh, you know, you're part of this thing and you stay in that thing all the time, right? That's your group. You stay in the group. Here we kind of cross groups quite freely, right? Uh, I don't think we used to do that quite as much, but I think that would be the major difference that I see right now. And, and uh, you know, I think that I, I don't say, I don't think it's uh, looked on very favorably in Switzerland. I think the term that we've heard them use is uh, that, that they dance with at, at too many weddings was the phrase. <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. Well, there's, yeah, there's yeah. another term that's not as nice. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, typically you're in a group until you're not in the group, and then you're in another group. You know, um, I think we have a little bit more freedom to do that. There, there's also this notion that the way that you were taught when you're eight is the way to play, and everyone else is wrong, <laughs> right? <laughs> and I think you would you would definitely say that 20 years ago you would definitely have heard that a lot more uh, in the fife and drum community in the U.S. Now it's kind of like, hey, whatever sounds good is cool, right? Uh, right. I think we're a little bit more open to other things, but you know, you could not win a competition in Connecticut if you played a certain way um, uh, at, at one point in time, and uh, you know, you had to play the, the the way that was the winning way. Right. Exactly. Uh, Corinne, uh, any plans to serve another term as the company president? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm thinking about it. Uh, I would say that that you know I started off in the company as an executive board member and then a secretary, um, and was much more involved in like the, the the actual doing things. And to transition into more of the leadership role, it's been a, a little bit of a change for me personally. So um, mm -hmm. I would say my first year was a, a little bit more challenging, um, just in terms of trying to not be the one doing everything and, and letting other people do stuff. Uh, and, you know, finding the, the folks who, who can and will and um, 
I'm strongly considering it. Um, but you know, well, you, you, you can't leave actually. You have to grow <laughs> as, as long as Kevin Brown before you could leave. It's, it's in the bio. Yeah. Yeah. Does tape and glue count? Um, <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I mean, we're considering it. Uh, I'm considering it where, you know, we're, we're talking about some of the implications of, you know, what that would really mean, you know, it, we're busy and I want to make sure that, you know, if I do continue on that I can devote enough time and attention to it. Um, I feel very horrible to, to continue on and be stretched in six different directions. So, and how is Scott as a first lady? <laughs> it's up quite nicely. Um, challenging sometimes, but <laughs> uh, no, well, you know, really nice to work with, with, uh, with Scott. Hooper drives the boat. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll tell you, you certainly came on at a challenging time, and it hasn't been easy. And I think you're doing a good job, really good job. So it'd be it'd be nice to have you stick around. You know, because if not you, I mean, who's it going to be, Brendan? I I, I will not take that on. I don't think anybody would vote for me either. (laughs) I think right, I'm voting for you right now. Uh, (laughs) You know, you know, you you asked a question earlier, Brian. It's been nagging me that I didn't answer it this way is, you know, what can someone do for the company? Uh, and, and, you know, honestly, if, if I were to think of one thing that people could do is if you've got a, a, a someone uh, in your core that is a senior member of the core, interview them, hmm. videotape, interview them, send it to the, the company. I mean, uh, I, you know, I, I, I recall, um, you know, the opportunity to meet Bob Atwell Sr. right before he passed. And we, we spent two hours at his house playing in his back garden with, with a bunch of folks. I, I think I learned more about drumming in that, that short two hour thing than I, than I had in the past five years. I mean, it was, it was, it was amazing. And, and, and it was the small things he said and just the way, the way he thought about the music was really inspiring to me. And I think that's something that we all have, we all know somebody, right? That, that yeah. something. And uh, I would say, don't wait for someone else to capture it. Capture it, you know. Send it to the archives. We'll 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 digitize it. We'll make sure it get, it's it's preserved. But um, you know, it, we need arms and legs to go out there to capture some of this stuff. And if you have an idea of what you can do to preserve something, do it. And and again, this isn't about all about looking backwards. But um, that that is part of the challenge as we move towards this sequence whatever the centennial thing you're going to have. Uh, <laughs> whatever that is, I mean, having this material available, can you imagine, you know, what a 12 year old Dave Loyal would do if he could listen to, you know, uh, 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 you know, Eric Perelu talk about field day in 1937. Right. And, and I, right. I gotta be honest. I, 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 when I grew up in Fife and Drum, I'm still growing up in Fife and Drum, obviously. I don't think I'll ever grow up, but I don't remember drumming next to any of these guys that were around me. I don't remember anybody ever saying, hey, go drum next to that guy. It, it wasn't until um, – uh, I'm trying to think. Uh, Bobby McGowan came up to me and said, hey, I heard uh, you know, you're doing some pretty great things, and you know, I just want to keep it up. And, and I had no idea who it was. I just heard the name. And then I found out it was Bobby McGowan. I was like goosebumps. you know. And, and I don't think that, that – 
the, it, it's a, I think it's a lot different now, um, but I, I think growing up, it, it just wasn't that way. We weren't really exposed and, and understood who was around us at the time. And, and I think that we're doing a lot better job of understanding who we have as a community. And I think it's one of the positive things uh, that's that's come from this podcast and, and in future interviews as well. We're going to be able to interview these people that we grew up idolizing and, and people that we respect in the community. So um, I think it's it's just a pretty cool thing. You know, there's a lot of positive things that have come from this this quarantine um, and, and being able to just kind of take a, a step back and, and realize what we have and what we had um, it is has been really incredible. For sure. Yeah. What we still have. Yeah. I mean, David Nelson was great. I mean, talk about somebody who knows something that that we don't, you know. Uh, uh, Brian Petney, fantastic. Oh fantastic. Exactly. Absolute hero of mine when I was growing up. This guy was, a, you know, the, the alpha drummer of all alpha drummers. Yeah. And, and he broke it down. I mean, he talked about it in depth and that's captured forever. I mean, we're never going to lose that. And, and you know, and, and kind of like it, like going back to our rehearsal yesterday where we're, we were working on Julian Palm music. Wouldn't it be a treat to hear Julian Palm talk about his writing you know, for 10 or 15 minutes or Frank on Arsenal talking about drumming or Hugh Quigley breaking down something. And it, it, it would be fascinating, but we have that opportunity now and we really should, we really should do it. And that's a, that's a great point, Scott, about what, what people can do uh, to help perpetuate this, this thing that we have. Um, and yeah, we ought to figure out a way to get it done on a pretty high level. That, that that's exactly how the, um, the the videotape that the company published uh, last year of um, of the Ed Classy giving a lesson and in his workshop is it's a five segment uh, uh, video and it was brought down to the company by his son and said hey you know I had this you should have wow this. and yeah. and uh, we we took one look at it and said everybody should have this <laughs> this is this is gold like this is you know you are lifting the curtain on what this guy was as, as a teacher, as a, as a drum maker, uh, you know, as a playing member of a core, um, you know, uh, to, to me, it's a, it's a, it's a view inside, you know, and that's, uh, it's, it's very privileged that we get to have those. And those are kind of the artifacts that really help. Um, you know, the only other thing I could compare that to is in, in the archives, there's a, there's a, there's a stack of the Kirk music and on the back of the Kirk music, is all the names of the tunes. I mean, they're these giant cards, right? They're, they're uh, 16 inches by, by 12 inches. Uh, and they, they, they would tack them on the wall at the, at the Polish uh, Falcon club in, in, um, in Brooklyn and, and, and play them. Uh, and, uh, but on the back of some of these, they've written all the tunes that they play and all the tempos, you know, it's, it's in pencil. You can look at this and say, wow, that's, that's really something that, that tells you something about what was going on at these rehearsals. That's fascinating. Well, and yeah, no, and, and we should really move toward that because that will be invaluable for future generations. Just like this talk has been, this will get archived and it'll be around forever. Um, and we really want to thank you guys for participating in this talk. I found it to be fascinating. I think everybody learned a lot um, and I enjoyed it tremendously. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you, guys.
you've liked this podcast and would like to support the bottom of the glass, go to patreon.com backslash bottom of the glass podcast to donate or click on the Patreon link on our Facebook and Instagram pages. And thank you. Program produced by Michael Blancaflor. Edited by Brendan Mason. Hosted by Brendan Mason, Dave Loyal, and Brian Watkins. Podcast music was created by Michael Blancaflor. Logo was done by Andrew Rudd. 